0: Seth, has anyone ever told you that you look like Jared Leto?
1: Oh my God, you're just saying that because I want to bone him so bad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but seriously, though, anybody back me up here. I mean, when you're a little more clean cut with your short hair and stuff, you absolutely resemble him.
2: You have a, a Leto-esque appearance. Leto, Leto-like.
1: leto I can absolutely see it. Didn't do the best Joker, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was a little bit of uh, tacked on. On that Blade Runner sequel.
0: Isn't it interesting how back in the day, he was this fresh-faced guy that was in movies like American Psycho and Requiem for a Dream and Fight Club.
1: Blonde and Fight Club.
0: And Panic Room, which, by the way, shout out to Panic Room because that movie rocks. Uh, but he then he's also got these like dreads. And he's a ridiculous character in it. But <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's what got into his head as far as being an actor because you know, before these days where he's just like the big method actor for bad movies. He's like the shitty Daniel Day-Lewis.
1: Yeah, I I like him in Requiem for a Dream, and I can't think of
3: another movie where I really like him.
0: Oh, watch Panic Room, man. Okay. That movie's awesome, and he's funny.
3: I honestly didn't know much about Jared Leto at all as an actor or a human. until all my research for this episode, and I... Did a Google search on Jared Leto, and boy, did that take me places. Oh, yeah, he's in the band. He's in uh, 30 Seconds to Mars. He, like, leads a sex cult. Oh, does he have a sex cult? Oh, that's, like, what the tabloids are saying. That's so cool. Only the sex cult guy would make Morbius.
0: Oh, man. In Morbius, this story was going around that, I guess, this character has a limp or, or has to walk on crutches or something. And so, of course, he insisted spending the entire production limping around. And whenever he would have to go to the bathroom, it would take him so long to get there and back that it was like halting production seriously. And (laughs) so he came to an agreement with the director where he agreed to let someone push him in a wheelchair to and from the bathroom every time he had to go.
1: (laughs) And that's why I didn't land with audiences.
0: And the movie made $50 at the box office. So good job. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, the film podcast where we confront the good, the bad, and in most cases, the ugly. What cinema has to offer? I am Mark D'Atavio. I'm and Seth Jordan. and today we're discussing two very different films from writer-director Darren Aronofsky, spanning opposite ends of his career. Those movies are 2000's grueling drug cautionary tale, Requiem for a Dream, and 2017's audience alienating
2: psychodrama, Mother.
1: Did you say we're disgusting or we're disgusting?
2: Did I really say that? You said today we're disgusting.
1: Yeah. I think we
0: are disgusting. I didn't like that one anyways. Let's go back.
1: No, I liked it. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Don't leave me here. It's a conference. This intros can be a, a conversation, you
0: know? This is disgusting what is happening right now.
1: I think this is going fine.
0: Yeah, let's get this show on the road. All right. Well, I would like to start by introducing our very special guest today. Uh, this is our good friend, James Jackson, who is coming to us from Pittsburgh. He is a writer and works in the film industry, currently has a uh, rather high-profile production he's involved in right now, which we are not going to name. James, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me, Mark. And Seth, yeah, on this podcast. Can I call you JJ? You can call me anything you want. Your rules. So this, this mysterious
1: film you're working on, it is Requiem for a Dream 2, right?
0: Electric Boogaloo.
3: <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: Well, I think you're the first person we've had on the show that this is this close to the industry, so we'll see what kind of perspective that brings. But I also know that you're pretty familiar with Darren Aronofsky and uh, are, or at least were, a pretty big fan of his. Is that accurate?
3: Yeah. I mean, I used to be like the biggest Darren Aronofsky stand on the planet in such an obnoxious way. Like he, would, like I just like viewed all his films as like gospel, like all through like college and in my early 20s. Then he made Noah and I think my opinion started changing.
0: That was the turning point for you?
3: Yeah and then I just like upon a lot of rewatches I've found that I've I've just not been as nearly as affected as the first time which is always like a very visceral experience like for each of his movies. They just come at you really hard and then uh, try to make you feel destroyed in some way Um, but the effect has been lost on subsequent rewatches of like all
1: his movies for you or are there ones that like still stick stick to it for you
3: oh yeah and I mean I'm still I still enjoy like I had like a very gross image of mother in my in my mind before rewatching this and I still kind of still kind of do but watching it a few days ago again for the first time in like five years it was hilarious and very <laughs> challenging i guess at the end i'll tell you what i
1: have i had never seen that movie before um and that's a silly movie
3: that's a that's that's a that's a crazy movie it's totally off the chain running down the street yeah wow wow the fountain was my favorite movie for a very long time it might still be i just haven't watched it in a few years and then my opinion on darren is is soured
1: see we were just talking about that one that one seems to be i've heard it both ways where like Mark kind of hates that one. And I've heard people say that like, maybe it's his best, but other people say it's his worst. I love that. I love that kind of stuff. I'm always into that stuff. So it makes me want to see it again. I haven't seen it since high school.
0: It's definitely one of his most. His most. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say that much. Best or worst, it's a lot. Uh, But a lot of these movies are a lot. And I think maybe that's the thing that unites Aronofsky's pretty wide ranging career is that there's a lot going on and Some of the movies are more minimal than others, but they're usually pretty ambitious and uh, sometimes can barely stand up on their own. They're so they're so jam packed full of things. And I definitely see how he's kind of an ideal filmmaker for younger people who are first getting into, you know, really exciting stylistic films. Um, And that's going back to Requiem for a Dream, which we're going to start with because as as much of a downer as that movie is, and we'll talk, we'll get plenty in depth about that. It's really feels like the work of a hungry young filmmaker who wants to throw in absolutely every visual and audio idea that he can come up with. And in the span between Requiem for a Dream and Mother, which we chose basically because they're kind of on opposite ends of his career and there's a lot of weird stuff in between them, but I think that they're probably both closest to unwatchable territory and i think maybe they would make the biggest impression on somebody uh, for better or for worse
1: yeah i hadn't seen uh, requiem in a long like i hadn't i hadn't seen it in a long time before like a couple a couple years ago i finally rewatched it and i think i was like kind of poo-pooing it at that point because you know you see stuff in your early film watching life that's like transformative and exciting like aronofsky is and then you get a little like you see a little more and you cross your arms about some of your early big uh movies that you saw and for a second i was kind of questioning why this would be on the unwatchables podcast but like boy like it, it gets it goes there. The, the there's some real darkness. There really is some real darkness. Like the word intense gets thrown around like with his movies a lot, but there is like a very and a very true to life. I think that's maybe what the biggest strength of this movie is that a lot of it is just like in comparison to Mother and his more like far out crazy like cur- like later career stuff. This is rooted in like the real dark reality that we can all very easily slip into if uh, given certain certain circumstances.
3: Yeah, he's a guy who likes to just take like this character with a weird obsession and then just drive them to the craziest extremes. And even in like Requiem for a Dream, these characters are more normal than the kinds you see later in his career. He was like the the ballerina that's obsessed with perfection and just like Jennifer Lawrence is like a pseudo human thing.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Even looking at something like Noah, you can see that running through that, that he's this obsessed driven guy on the brink of madness. And yeah, I mean, that uh, definitely applies to the fountain even applies to the wrestler, which is kind of the one that's I don't know if that's the outlier in his filmography or not. It seems like it's the definitely the most minimal, like lowest key one stylistically and story wise. Uh, But before we get too much into his other work, at the time Requiem came out, he had only done one movie, which was Pie. And I actually watched this for the very first time just a couple days ago and quite liked it. It's, you know, very low budget and shot in a very stark, high contrast, washed out black and white. And all the seeds are there, I think, for his whole career. It's kind of this descent into paranoia that gets more hallucinatory as it goes got the
1: fake Aphex twin breakbeats through the whole thing that really date it in this fun way that uh requiem also has which i kind of love that in hindsight i kind of love how uh both that movie and requiem for a dream are kind of dated in this fun way they're very part of that time period it feels like yeah
0: they're very similar with their scores with their sound design um, and especially this device of having a, a bunch of really repetitive rapid cutting close ups so that every time someone's opening or closing a door or in the case of Requiem for a Dream shooting up, you get these same close ups of like a dilated eye and a little s- cell splitting and it's the same sound cue.
3: I think he calls them hip hop montages. Yeah. Rapid cuts with accompanied by just like extreme sounds so that it like makes like a rhythm.
0: So there's a lot of similarities. The guy in Pi is like a mathematician losing his mind trying to come up with a number that somehow solves something about the universe and the stock
1: market. Again, a, an, an obsessive uh, male guy trying to do something at the center of the movie that destroys everything
0: yeah and it's the kind of movie that would come out you know through the festivals and be like oh who is this guy it makes a big impression it's almost like a demo reel or something of like everything that he can do stylistically and i feel like requiem for a dream that as the follow-up is a realization of those things on a bigger scale so It's more polished and there's better actors and performances in it. And I'm not sure that it's a better movie, but I do think that it makes a big impression that way in a way that I mean, even his movies since then, I don't think have gone quite into the overdrive, like the entire way through the way that Requiem does. Just for a little bit of background, this was based on a 1978 novel uh, by Hubert Selby Jr., which I have not read, but I know that he did write the script with the novelist, and the novelist actually appears in the movie. He's the guy at the end yelling at uh, Marlon Wayans while he's working in prison.
3: The problem with you dope dealers. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. I did read the book 10 years ago and I loved it, but I don't know if it was because I was such a huge Darren Aronofsky fan, but I'm also currently reading another Hubert Selby book just independently of of this right now called The Demon, which is very misogynistic, but very good. I've read part of that. I could not get through it because it was so horrifying. How does the Requiem for a Dream book... I remember it being like very... The movie and the book were were pretty similar, but there was a lot more of the mother. So it was like basically just like from two perspectives, if I remember properly. It's been several years. And that one's from like the fifties or something, right? Yeah, seventies or eighties. Okay. So there's
1: clearly some like updating going on with the movie itself, but it being this like tale as old as time, right?
0: Yeah, and I'd be curious to see exactly what the book is like or how it's written because I do feel like the plot is pretty bare bones as far as this movie goes. And the the real interest in it is how he juices everything up stylistically like every moment. But the reason that we have this movie on this particular podcast is that a lot of people view this as a very punishing, depressing, intense movie, which I think it definitely is. And I know that when it first came out, it was slapped with an NC-17 rating, which back in 2000 was a much bigger deal than it would be now because the theaters wouldn't play it. And I remember that after the studio decided that they were just going to release it unrated, if you were to go to like Blockbuster or a major video chain to try and rent it, you had to get this R-rated version that cut stuff out, I think mainly from the kind of sex scene if you want to call it that towards the end i think that was really the only thing
1: i mean that is the thing that that ending montage that it all builds towards um but uh i guess we should talk about what the bare bones plot is which is great because it is this archetypal fall from grace sort of story mainly centered around jared leto entered the verse, jennifer connelly I forget their names, and I'm always bad with people's names when they're celebrities in movies. I just never think of them like Mary. That's Marianne. No, that's Jennifer.
0: Marion and Harry is Jared Leto's character. His mother is Sarah Goldfarb, played by Ellen Burstyn. Uh, And then we have Marlon Wayans as their friend Tyrone. Uh, And as far as I know, this is Marlon Wayans' pretty much only dramatic film role. He's known for the scary movie films and White Chicks and little man and all kinds of awful comedies
3: he's good in this yeah he's great
0: yeah he's very good in this but it didn't seem to lead anywhere interestingly enough
1: i uh, the only bit of trivia that i have for this movie is that he said that he used all the money that he got from this movie to buy everybody at the rap party lobster
0: so he must have had a huge paycheck from
1: this <laughs> that's that's it for me it it is just pretty basic. It's like, it, it reminds me a lot of the movie Trainspotting, which, you know, is uh, came out earlier than this, but it's also this sort of, like, the trajectory is that the first part of the movie, I mean, it still is a rocky road, but it is showing you, I think rightfully so, the fun part of being, like, into drugs and being frivolous and being free. Jennifer Connolly and Jared Leto being in love, they're just kids in love in New York and it's just like all filmed like it's a dream or something. I love the first half of this movie. I think it's just so exciting. Uh and they're just like doing drugs and running from the cops and just doing whatever they want to do. And it's just that feeling of being in you in the prime of your youth before, you know, shit gets real, which is the second half of the movie, right?
0: Yeah, and Marlon Wayne's just kind of their friend, the third wheel who's always hanging around with them. Um, And basically, they're just they're addicted to uh, some. I guess it's suggested it's heroin and they get into dealing it. Basically, that's where the shift happens for them. And it's just like any other pretty typical kind of drug rise and fall story where, you know, business goes good for a while and they're like, oh, we just got to get one more big score. They can't get the big score. They start to get too high off their own supply and things downward spiral from there. Well, at the same time, we have this parallel storyline going on with Harry's mother, who's the Ellen Burstyn character and that that's a little more of an interesting thread to me than the rest of the parts of this movie. I would say that the the heart of this movie is the mother character. basically she's alone you know she's alone and widowed, and her son is always breaking in to steal her TV and sell it and she's got to go out and buy it back. Uh, She thinks that she's going to end up on a game show because she gets a phone call and some paperwork to fill out and wants to lose weight to fit into her old red dress, which leads to her getting prescribed diet pills and basically going into like a speed psychosis. And just like everyone else in the movie, it's just a slow motion downward spiral to her misery and despair as well. And I think it's story wise. That's pretty much all Requiem for a Dream is unless am I missing anything?
1: Uh, they say ass to ass at one point.
0: <laughs> they do. That would be the scene that got it in NC seventeen rating.
1: Um also Jared Leto, should we talk about how Jared Leto's really vulnerable in this movie? He's so hot. Him and Jennifer, I would just like I'd, I'd 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 do crimes. I would do crimes just to be in the same room with them, doing ecstasy and being hot, you know.
0: Seth would be buying from them for sure.
1: I, I would. I would get in the drugs just to like, can I just stand by you guys?
0: He'd be like the guy they couldn't get to leave. Like, hey, Seth wants to come score from us. Like, oh man, but he's not going to leave for like a few hours. He always sits on the couch. keeps asking us questions.
1: I'll come over. I'll shoot up some weed and I'll just look at how pretty you guys are.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I keep... uh I keep editing notes for myself while we're recording, so I'm just adding here. Seth too horny at 36 minutes.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you. It usually takes longer. Someone
2: get the hose. But yeah, those two actors are, I mean, at
0: their youngest and most beautiful and fresh faced in this film.
3: Although Jennifer Connelly did was in Labyrinth, and she was way uh, uh, well, but that was not the. They didn't have the same career path, where Jared Leto was not a child actor. I think Jennifer Connelly is like one of the. Rare child actors who feel like got success. She
1: survived uh, Dario Argento. Phenomena, phenomenon, phenomenon, phenomenon. That movie's fucking crazy. Uh, and it's like a it, it it could be a very good double feature with Labyrinth. I think, but uh, and here she is. Uh, I think she does a great job in this movie. I think the the and, and I talk about them being hot or something, sure, but also. It, it they they are perfect that you can tell for for Darren Aronofsky to like run around with these people because he is just like he's so visual he's just he's like which is always a redundant thing to say about a filmmaker but like you said the whole thing about this movie is that the bare bones plot pretty boring pretty straightforward but like what if what it is it's like it's about experiencing this movie it's about seeing it and they are a big part of it and you get caught up in their energy I think.
0: Absolutely. I think that the statistic is like in a typical like 100 minute movie There's usually like between 600, 700 cuts uh, just throughout like the whole film. And this one has over 2000. So this is editing, I think, is really paramount here Uh, because, of course, we get those like repetitive, you know, quick close ups when they're getting high and other things are happening. But. There's so much more than that, too, the way that he uses like time lapse photography in this and slow motion, sometimes in the same shot where it's like you'll have one character who seems to be moving in slow motion while everyone around her is going super fast. And these, you know, in these long tracking shots Uh, and lots of split screen, too, which I think is a little underused these days.
3: I love the split screen. It's like a comic book or something. Yeah, just from the opening sequence with stealing the television. It's so heartbreaking and like so. And you're just like, oh shit, this is the ride I'm in for. Just like this mother son relationship that doesn't really. I mean, you can tell they love each other eventually, like not particularly in that scene, um, unless I'm forgetting some details. But that's just like, it just doesn't get any better from there. That's like the baseline of what happens. Like, that's, like, the one of the best things that happens to them.
1: I don't want to put you on the spot, James, but I feel like we rarely talk about, like, technical stuff on this podcast because it's so, like, usually more thesis-based. But, like, since you seem to have a, a little bit of a background in film, I don't know if you, like, have any insight on some of the, like, filmmaking conventions that are going on because they are, like, incredibly intense. Isn't there, like, a rig or something at some point where it's, like, attached to the person's face, like the camera?
3: Yeah. The study cam, yeah, where it just straps to the person's body. And then usually a study cam operator will be the person, the actual camera operator, like following the person, which is something that Darren does a lot in his career where he just like, especially in like the wrestler and stuff, where he's following Mickey Rourke around with the study cam. Um, but in this it's it's different because study cam is facing like Jennifer Connelly is the steady cam operator cuz it's strapped to her and she's she's walking around with it which you don't really see that much as far or at least as often like I can't really think of too many instances where the actor is uh, has the steady cam like facing themselves
0: and it, yeah it achieves this effect where like so that the actor is fixed in the center of the frame and only the background seems to be moving and when they're like running like when Marlon Wayans is tearing ass down the street and it's strapped to him, it's a really strange effect where it seems like just the background is is going nuts.
1: And I know there's definitely like certain things they must have had to use to get these crazy close-ups. I don't know what kind of shit went into that, but I know just like from what little I've used with cameras, like trying to actually get something that small, that
3: close and that in focus, like wild. Like someone's pupil must have been like someone's, like just microscope lens or something, like uh, or micro microphotography whatever scientists use, which
1: is interesting to, to see in a movie like this that is so like even at its like most extreme is like an extreme every day. It's like an aspect of every day that that we like kind of see, but is uh, now we're using like crazy technology to document it. Um, which is, I think, is the most interesting part of the movie.
0: There's lots of switching between the super uh, close-ups and wide shots, which has a very kind of startling effect going back and forth, Um, especially in these like surreal fantasy sequences, because, again, there's so many tricks going on in here, but a lot of the stuff in particular with Ellen Burstyn's character when she is just losing her mind on speed... Those scenes go so over the top, where you know she's trying not to eat, and we literally have like cupcakes and donuts swirling in the sky, like around her. Which
1: feel um, as much as they are like very much in the film world. I could see where I would like to read the book in that way that it it, it feels how how it might be to read a book sometimes, where you are sort of seeing this like a, a, a few commas, a, a string of of sentences can sometimes equate into this sort of amorphous like more lyrical poetic kind of image in your head which it seems
3: like darren is going for more of that rather than a naturalistic kind of way of doing things yeah they are like just like how the music has has dated the movie those effects have like sort of i feel like they've both made it like they've both outdated it and like made it kind of timeless in a way
1: yeah because there's that whole scene where the. um What's his face? Shooter McGavin. Shooter McGavin is in this movie from uh, Happy Gilmore. Uh, And he comes out of the TV at one point as like a strange staticky TV man and he's talking to her and stuff. I love that scene. Yeah,
0: we didn't even mention this. These infomercials that the character is constantly watching and we see them all throughout the movie. We start and end with them. And eventually they you know, he's kind of like a self-help guru guy about Uh, losing weight and not eating sugar and giving these seminars and yeah eventually they come right out of the tv we got uh, people working on the set walking into her living room and moving stuff around and they they do a conga line like it's a pure nightmare and uh, i like when it's not afraid to get even kind of silly like that because so much of this is dour and even though it, it's still not a fun time, it's still something horrible and intense happening. But it seems a little more playful and out there, which in general is what I've found that I like about his movies with the ones that I like. So this kind of just dips its toe in to, to that going like really over the top in that way. But I think it's welcome here. And all of his his whole kitchen sink approach to the formal elements to this. I, I don't mind here. Some people think it's a little too much or it's a little too showy um, or that it's style over substance. And even though I do think this is a little lacking on the substance front, that's just all the more reason for me to enjoy this mostly as, you know, an aesthetic object. And so I, I don't know. I don't necessarily think that all that stuff is too much because without it, I mean, this would be such a, a, just painful miserable slog right
3: yeah i mean even like the way he shoots the film it's just like he tries to keep you as stimulated as possible like just like the drugs that the set of man- the one set of main characters is taking or just like the speed that ellen burston's character is taking he's just like constantly trying to stimulate you in as many different ways as possible yeah it even goes down to like the the camera lenses and or the types of lenses where they are just you have like a TV screen that you're viewing sometimes you have surveillance cameras at some point you have extreme close ups of course there's still photography, which is underutilized in a lot of a lot of films but there's just not a whole lot of uh reason to use it in many in many movies but the photography is like beautiful and that keeps you keeps me entertained when i'm when I'm watching the movie
1: and I think that's a good it's, it's good to harp on it uh and it's, I don't think it is necessarily style over substance like the style is there and it's not it's not just there to uh appease your adhd or something i think it is there to put you in the mindset of these characters that are hurtling like towards a horrible end which happens to people in in real life and like when you make mistakes you probably aren't seeing like what's ahead of you? Like which is that horrible ending montage at the end of the movie? Right, you are you 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 are seeing all the exciting stuff, and things are moving too fast, at, like almost to the point of distraction, almost to the point of being style over substance, to the point where you know, like these characters are in too deep suddenly before they could even realize it, and they're suddenly trapped. Like like you don't even it's It's hard to pinpoint where the point of no return necessarily is in this movie.
0: I, I find it interesting that the even the supposed good times early on don't necessarily play that way to me like there's ser- definitely some stuff between the lovers that is affecting or you know that they definitely care for each other but there's right from the beginning and I think all throughout the doom is just overbearing.
1: Yeah, he's still stealing his grandma's TV or whatever you know like
0: right. Or like that scene where they're him and Marlon Wayans are sitting at some sort of a food stand or something and steal this cop's gun and throw it back and forth to each other. And then it turns out that it was a fantasy or something. But even there, they seem to be tapping into the the jittery, paranoid aspect of everything. Yeah, it's weird because all this stuff that we're talking about, all of the surface style stuff, I it almost strikes me like a music video sensibility. That you know, every every moment has its own tone uh, and its own new kind of rhythm to it. Yeah, James
1: said hip hop montage, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, which on one hand, that's what's so engaging about it, um, but it's also, I you know it's, it feels to me at times like it's its own highlight reel. <laughs> like it's kind of it's constantly going for the the big moments and everything, and I guess the times where it does calm down and get. More still that that does really stand out because of how frenetic everything else is. Uh, but I, I wonder if maybe that's where I'm coming from with the the characterization and everything, where we have these really good performances and there's plenty of you know really real and true feeling moments in it. It's just the trajectory of the characters seems so predetermined to me, but with the doom starting out from the very beginning and the way that this is so committed just to viscerally capturing the downward spiral. Like I feel like this is a movie that really has like a one-track mind. And it is possible to find it a little tiring or reductive as it goes on, so... Borderline preachy, almost. Exactly, it's almost... I feel like... Underneath all of this stuff, this is maybe just like the best looking after school special ever made.
1: That's exactly what I like came to mind, like the last couple times I saw this movie, which is like I wonder about it. I'm never quite sure by the end because it is, I don't know that it's trying to say anything like that hasn't been said before. It's still very deep and very important. It's important to showcase this sort of downward spiral that happens all around us. Like every time you walk down the street, like you can, or you, you, you can feel it yourself that, you know, it may be you're in a safe place in this time in your life or something because of various factors, but you can very easily like see that maybe the line isn't so, so far away from you being the person on the street who's, uh, you know, been through something like this movie maybe. But it does sometimes feel like, is the point of this movie to tell me that drugs are bad? <laughs> like,
3: but uh yeah, I don't know. I, I what do you think about that, James? Uh I mean, along those lines, I do feel like the movie does kind of it kind of goes too fast in that direction. Like I would like to see like more like backstory and more character development and maybe less of like the extreme stuff that like happens at the end or you can still do the extreme stuff maybe, but maybe just like draw things out a little bit more. So I feel like, once things start descending, they just like, it just goes down the rabbit hole. It would just be nice to see like some of my favorite parts of this movie is just like when Harry is talking to his mother, the first time that he sees her just like on drugs. And that like, that's like, a I don't know, it's like a five minute scene. Just, like, they're having like a real conversation. And then he just discovers like something, something is off with her. Like, it'd be nice if there were like more moments like that with like, more developed character interactions. Because it moves so fast sometimes, you just can't get the sense of who these characters actually mean to each other.
1: Yeah, you start to wonder if they are just there to be archetypes or something. Like even Jennifer Connelly is like, oh, she's the rich girl who, you know, thinks she's totally untouchable. And then all of a sudden, she's in this horrible situation. And there's all these, you know, all the characters are kind of like that. You almost wonder if that's by design in order to make them sort of just like more machinery for the bombast of the whole thing. I don't know if that's necessarily a fault of the movie because it's still, I mean, even if that is a fault, it still does kind of help to make it so much more straightforward and so much more intense. I just think, yeah, it could have been more of like a multi-level experience if I could have actually like felt like Jared was a real person, um, uh, like a singular kind of
3: character Yeah, I mean, like Jennifer, yeah, Jennifer Connolly didn't seem like very developed to me. She doesn't really have much of a personality of much sort. Like, there's nothing like substantive that's like ex- explained there really. And the in the book, she's just like, if I remember properly, she's just like this really good artist who's like really successful, um, and we don't really see much of that. Yeah, we get like a a
0: kind of passing mention to it. Like, your drawings are so good. We can get out of here one day. And it's, you know, it's the kind of focus on those big sweeping, you know, ideas and gestures that I think comes at the expense of the depth and complexity, really. And I think you could say the same thing that you're saying about Marion's character, about Tyrone, and even about Harry, honestly, that all of the stuff with them, again without focusing just on the stylistic part of it is such a straight ahead, you know, looking for the big score and the bad times come and and everything. And the way that everything kind of happens simultaneously where, you know, any one of these individual stories could seem authentic, but maybe just the fact that these are all happening at the same time like to this guy and his mom and his girlfriend and his best friend and they all kind of end up in the same place simultaneously at the end that which makes it all seem just kind of preordained you know and which is what kind of i think dampens the impact of that final act which is just this symphony of despair and and body horror and sexual degradation and brutal prison guards and you know losing a limb and everything where um... it
1: almost feels like borders on like an old-fashioned exploitation movie at that point like a like a scared straight movie from the 70s there's so many of those sort of hippie movies from that time that are all about like they start they start out like they're having a great time in the summer of love and then it all goes to hell because they you know there's there's now they're selling their bodies on the street and there's drugs and it's horrible and they're having a horrible time and their lives are destroyed. And like, that's sort of like the point of the movie for like, because it is just to get a reaction out of the audience.
3: Why is Sarah Goldfarb getting electroshock therapy? I mean, I feel like that's just there just to like, get, like you said, like a reaction from the audience.
0: Yeah, they really pile it on there because, you know, they dwell on her squirming and shrieking while they're, they're putting a tube up her nose. And, of course, the orderlies are just talking about their weekend while they're all doing it. It's not clear, like, how much time has passed because it seems like she's there, like, one or two nights. And they're saying, well, we've tried every medication and you're not responding to anything. Apparently, we haven't gotten the hold of anyone who even knows you. And now we're going to move on to ECT, which... I have read that that is something that they sometimes still use today for people with super severe depression that they have gotten good results with when, you know, they're really desperate to to find anything that works. So, yeah, I don't know how likely it is that they would be using that in whenever this movie takes place for someone who's just uh, out of her mind on pills. I don't know.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. That scene is also, yeah, it feels like it's shot like a like he's a, almost like a mad scientist during that montage or something. Like she's in like Frankenstein's lab or something, and there's and that is intercut with uh, Hubert Selby Jr., the author, who's like sort of meant to be a little funny, also thrown in there in the midst of all the horrible stuff. And there's like almost like a gleefulness to the montage at the end, like the horrible montage. There's like a like I almost wonder if there is some sort of like knowing like he knows how far he's going, how absurd like the heights are getting. Um, it's obviously not trying to get laughs, but it's a weird sort of crisscross of feelings for me.
0: Yeah. And I think with all that said, then, if there is a saving grace, it is most of the stuff that we get with Ellen Burstyn's mom's character. And because I was pretty critical about the other characters having these pretty thin arcs and kind of more being types than really authentic-seeming people. Or if they're authentic, it's in a glancing kind of way. That's not very specific. But I think that Ellen Burstyn comes closest just with her performance being so just heartbreaking and vulnerable and anguished that she almost overcomes that the way that her arc has that same foregone conclusion-ness to it and the kind of lack of depth that she at least comes closest to doing that and because her story is a little less typical
1: yeah she almost escapes this like exploitive storm
0: yeah and she was nominated for a best actress at the oscars for this so she got some recognition for it and i'm sure it was not fun to do because uh, she spends a lot of it in a fat suit since she's supposed to be losing weight. And it really is upsetting seeing her at the end when she looks like a corpse walking around. Like, however they did that with the makeup and her performance is just not a fun time to look at with her.
3: She just, like, broke my heart, like, the entire <laughs> the entire movie. The The loneliness that she exudes is, like, so relatable for, like, a lot of people. To, like, a lot of people just have people in their, their lives who who are like that who just just watch TV all the time and they don't really have anyone.
0: Yeah, and she has that specificity the other characters don't have. You know, her whole crew of old ladies that hang out in front of the apartment. And she's not just dealing with a drug addiction. Before that, she's dealing with, like, food addiction, basically, and trying to go on a diet. And some of that stuff is a little funny, like the way she, you know, sets out her grapefruit and everything and it just kind of disappears before she could even seem to touch it. And the egg cracks and disappears, and that's you know that stuff adds shades to it. And then when she is losing her mind, I think that those are some of the most effective scenes because I think that my take on Aronofsky is that he's like a a really great horror director who sometimes gets wrapped up in this you know pretension with a lot of his projects, but when you let him loose on like a scene where the fucking her refrigerator becomes like a man eating like literally opens up. It's like jaws and is coming out after (laughs) her to get her. And she's like losing her mind. Uh, That's where I'm like, yeah, more of this. And uh, you know, spoiler alert for the next movie we're going to discuss for him. I think that that's where he really can put that skill to use, but
1: you get a lot more of that. And then some,
0: yeah. Yeah. And even Jared Leto's arm wound, which gets to be just revolting looking, (laughs) uh,
1: you know, from shooting up
0: so much and that close up of you know he's showing his arm and it's just all purple and overgrown and disgusting and he still shoots right into it <laughs> with a needle oh like, yeah that's body horror right there
3: why don't you use the other arm yeah <laughs> maybe i don't know how that kind of stuff works but it seems like the yeah wrong can't decision. you do that
2: can't can't you shoot that pretty much anywhere like you could do it in like your eyeballs and your toes and shit.
1: Train spotting taught us this.
2: I mean, I would once my arm looked like that.
1: That's, yeah, that's the thing I wonder about with this movie is the like, I don't know, I don't have a history with hard drugs or anything. Like, and I don't like to get into that sort of idea that like a filmmaker has to have had like experience with um, like whatever the subject matter is. It is like, kind of it it is kind of intense and weird like to think about like an nyu film student like who seems very safe in their life contemplating these things of like someone's life being destroyed by heroin addiction um i have to assume there was a lot of research that went into this as well of course he's using hubert selby jr's book which is he was also if i'm not mistaken a a drug addict at some point
2: speaking of of research should we talk for a minute about jared leto's like kind of pseudo uh method approach to this did anybody anybody read about this
0: not in regards to this movie but please tell me that he sought his own arm off
2: and i don't know like i couldn't i I did some digging to try to find real like hardcore specifics on this because i wanted to know like what does what does this mean like is this a, a a turn of phrase but he apparently spent some time living on the streets Uh, of New York in the, in the lead up to this and like befriended a bunch of people who were homeless or addicted themselves. And he obviously did do the kind of, you know, the classic rapid weight loss thing by starving himself. But I couldn't really find anything that said like, oh yeah, Jared Leto was sleeping in a tarp, like in Washington Heights or something. Like I could not find anything like that. So I don't, I don't know that he was literally living on the streets, but he at least spent a lot of time hanging out like with, uh, with people who were clearly like actively deeply struggling spiraling drug addicts i'm sure whatever he did he annoyed the shit out of them those (laughs) poor people
0: (laughs) well before we get into any like final thoughts i do want to make sure i at least mention the sound design because i think that's as big as the visual stuff that's all going on here and you know i mean that goes beyond the the hip-hop montages to all kinds of different sounds and atmospheric uh, you know overlays audio from other scenes I feel like a ton of attention was put into that uh, aspect of this movie and the score I feel like is so uh, well known now the actual music score in this which I mean how many movies these days just original regular movies have a theme or a score in them that gets stuck in your head you know or that you would leave with afterwards so kudos to that
1: yeah this is the chronos quartet it's just like used in everything i feel like i've heard it like during the, the olympics and in like video game trailers and just trailers for random stuff that has nothing to do with this movie like
0: yeah i saw it in an nfl commercial and <laughs> Kronos Kronos all about that
1: Monet.
3: they're all about that Monet.
0: yeah like, are they playing requiem for a dream on during the Super Bowl, like no, <laughs> it's just the score.
3: The, the sweeping strings uh throughout the movie sometimes come at like the most like unexpected times, like when uh there's like one scene in particular where Harry and uh Marion are having a, a huge fight, and then there' like the music's going one way and then it gets like this, these really dramatic like it's just like a turn of strings when she's like, "I don't know what I'm gonna have to do to get the drugs or something and then, like the music is like completely just like. It's like it's so extra at that point uh, where it had been like so tame and then he's like so clearly trying to guide you in a certain emotional direction with this with this change of fast music.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of when Keith David shows up near the end of this movie as this guy who just trades sex for drugs and that's where uh, Marion ends up going to and there's a moment where he basically is like unbuckling his pants to get oral sex from her and the and flat out like psycho strings start. It's like, yeah,
1: (laughs) again, like reaching this silly, absurd level, like I don't know necessarily what to do with, but quite often is a little bit of a signature of an unwatchable movie.
0: Yeah. And that I mean, we didn't really talk about that. The ass to ass scene was what got this. And the NC-17, and that ended up being released uh, unrated. But I guess that was, you know, important enough to him to, you know, to put two different versions of the movie out there. Um, and it is awful, but, you know, I guess everything is awful in this. So at the end, it's literally them just all going into the fetal position in completely different locations. And so we have Marlon Wayans just uh, in jail being yelled at by an Old novelist for the rest of his life, I guess. And Perry loses his arm, and Jennifer Connolly, I, I guess, has lost her soul. And then, of course, there's Sarah Goldfarb, who is, I guess, just out of her out of her mind too. And yeah, they really hit home with that. And then the movie just uh, ends.
1: And Wayne's, he gets a does he get a fetal position shot? I forget. But
0: not only does he get a fetal position shot it's overlaid with the uh, like an image of him as a little boy being cradled by his mother just in case you weren't feeling sad
3: enough oh
1: yeah i will say one of my favorite shots darren aronofsky ever did is that swirly shot where uh where he he's fucking his girlfriend or whatever and it and like it like the camera like goes up above them while they're having sex i just think that's such an awesome awesome beautiful shot well, any final
0: thoughts about Requiem for a Dream? And we obviously we do want to cover the question is of if you could unwatch this, if you would. Um so I don't know James, you want to start?
3: Uh sure. Yeah. Uh I I I would not unwatch it. Uh, I think there's a lot of it's just it's a very visceral movie, but I think there's a lot of there's a lot of good moments in all of the in all of the darkness that happens to all the characters. So many cool things are happening on screen all the time. Like it's like I would not wanna not see this. And the music's so cool and Ellen Burstyn's character is so heartbreaking. Yeah, I I still like the movie and I think it's a watchable
1: Yeah, I would uh I would watch her it again. While it's exploitive at certain points and kinda like debatably naive. It does just have like a exciting quality, that momentum that you can get caught up in. I do like that it is shedding light on these, again, very everyday tragedies.
0: Yeah, I think we're all pretty much on the same page about its heart's in the right spot. And it's really more of a naivete or a narrow mindedness than it is anything that is particularly scaremongering or anything like kids is. And I do agree that this goes down a lot easier because there is a certain level that you can appreciate it on just as a visual experience. So I do like it, you know, slightly more than a lot of other movies that we've talked about on this podcast, even if ultimately I definitely um, don't love it as much as I did back when I was way too young to be watching it. And it kind of falls into that category of all the movies I shouldn't have been watching like this and kids in a clockwork orange that have not necessarily stood the test of time. Although I think this, this has an edge over those two other movies as far as in my personal, uh, canon. Cause I, I was a little swept up in the style and everything still and Ellen Burst and all that stuff that you guys brought up. So I'm certainly not going to start and watching things with this one, but again, this was just his second movie and now things get interesting.
1: Oh, now we got a whopper. Oh, my God.
0: But yeah, before we get to Mother, I do want to real quick just skim over his very interesting career in between these two movies. Uh, Because, you know, he followed it up with The Fountain. So we have this big science fiction esoteric statement, then followed up by this low-key drama character study, The Wrestler. And then veers off again into this lurid psychodrama, like repulsion style freak out with Black Swan. And just when you think you know where he's going to go next (laughs) is when he goes to his biblical epic Noah.
1: I love Noah. I can't help it.
0: And uh, at this point, I just thought maybe I, yeah, had lost the thread. So very interesting going through those. But Black Swan was a big revelation to me at the time because I I very much liked that movie. And that was kind of the moment where I was thinking, wow, this is the Aronofsky that it's all been building to. Finally, he's he's getting to really flex his horror muscle and his psychological tension in ways that are kind of silly and over the top, but that are just a blast for me.
1: I think it just keeps getting nuttier and nuttier. Like even Noah, like even though it's less like art house, it's just like crazy that any of that movie exists. You just can't believe like what is happening on screen. And I kind of love that. And that gets taken again, like to the next level with mother.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, I remember thinking that Noah seems like his most compromised movie where there were clearly things in it that were supposed to be like a big blockbuster I remember there being some really silly rock monsters that have some sort of role
1: in the plot. <laughs> I love those.
0: But then it does have this kind of cool creation sequence that's really the main thing I remember about the movie where I was thinking, all right, this is the, the part where this snaps together. That there, maybe here's a glimpse of what he found interesting in this material. And then Mother comes along and I think snaps it back into could not be less compromised that this is like 100% he got some of his friends together in a house and locked him in there for the weekend and shot something. And I I really, so we're talking about 2017 now, which is, you know, quite a distance from Requiem for a Dream. But I remember when this movie came out, it was marketed as a horror film. It It starred Jennifer Lawrence, who was one of the biggest stars in the world at that time. And you know, has other familiar faces like Javier Bardem and Michelle Pfeiffer and Ed Harris. And people went out to see it, and they hated it. <laughs> uh, there's this thing called Cinema Score, which is basically a poll that they take of general audiences when they're leaving a movie, like right as they walk out of the theater on opening weekend. And Mother was one of only 22 films in the history of Cinema Score to get a flat
3: F. I, I saw it on opening night in 2017 in Columbus, Ohio, and the person that was sitting like two seats away from me had like this notebook. And then when the movie ended, he slammed the notebook shut and then like threw it down onto his like onto his knee. And he was... <laughs> it was amazing. That was probably him. That was probably Johnny Cinema
1: Score.
0: <laughs> yeah, Tony and I saw this probably opening weekend in 2017. And I'll never forget our theatrical experience because it was great. You know, it was loaded with normal people, but a lot of like teenage girls. And as it went on, you could see them moving like into confusion, into being completely confounded, then to being <laughs> uh, angry at <laughs> at the movie. And, I can't believe this movie happened. Yeah, that's my... That's my favorite thing about it. I I also can't believe that it happened. It- It's almost like a passion of the Christ or something.
2: Jennifer Lawrence just happened to be really like blowing up around this time and like was exactly the type of actress who, who could for this, for this narrow window, at least like draw all these people out to see a movie, like knowing nothing else about it. And so it ends up being like the perfect, like on top of it already being such like a confrontational experience for audiences. It just has this, like this hook that just gets so many people out that I imagine pretty much everybody that saw this in its first couple of weeks had some similar experience of people just absolutely losing it in the in the audience
1: see i totally missed it i didn't know there was so much hate for this movie and because i was kind of out of the aronofsky game for a little bit but this movie put me back i i am in love with this movie i think it i i, I just watched it today and what the fuck man didn't not know this was the deal. And I love looking at all the negative reviews. The negative reviews are hilarious. There was one review by The Guardian that made me feel stupid because I never realized that it's gob smacked. G-O-B. It says no leaves no gob unsmacked. And I always thought <laughs> that it was just God smacked, like the band, until this point. Cause I never saw it in writing, but it's G-O-B smack. I didn't know there was such thing as a gob, which is apparently part of your mouth. Gob, I think. It's smacking my gob. And this movie did that to people. And it smacked my gob. I was gob smacked. Mother smacked all of our gobs. So uh who we should spin the bottle and see who has to like do the plot synopsis of this thing. <laughs>
0: I can have a go at it unless anybody else wants to
3: <laughs> have your, have your fun. I'll, I'll try it. We can chime in. Well, all three of us will, uh, will not listen in and give our own interpretations of the plot that happens.
0: Yeah. We can play like telephone with what the hell this movie is. Well, I'll ask this question later, but I am interested to see if anybody, if you didn't know, if you had just seen, uh, his first few movies, if you would even know this was Aronofsky, because, all of that, most of all that stuff with Requiem for a Dream we were talking about is gone. And this is mainly grainy, handheld, like claustrophobic, single setting chamber drama is kind of how it starts out at least. And it really does bring to mind something like Rosemary's Baby or Repulsion. I guess uh, Roman Polanski is in the air where there's, there's something very soaked in dread and uneasy going on. And it is not clear exactly what it is for an extremely long time. Yeah, I thought it would
1: stay there, which it does not. It is It is it it is very far. By the end, you are so far from being Rosemary's baby, you don't know where you are.
0: <laughs> but when it starts, everyone in the theater is still kind of like, all right, cool, let's see what the spooky shit is going on. We've got this married couple, Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem, living together in this big house secluded in the countryside that's way too big for the two of them. And he is a famous writer, kind of struggling with writer's block, it's suggested. And she is basically a homemaker who's completely in service of supporting him. And there's talk about how she wants a
1: child. She's literally a homemaker.
0: Oh, yeah. Good one. Good one. We should say that the first thing you see in this movie is this fiery tableau and this house kind of that's been burnt down is regenerating
3: amazing time-lapse beautiful (laughs) time-lapse
0: yeah for sure backward time-lapse they they burned jennifer lawrence to ash and then played it backwards uh but at this point you're not really sure what's going off that's a dream or uh, if it's symbolic or what's going on but yeah they're just living together and another couple uh well first ed harris kind of wanders into their house this total stranger and you can tell that the husband, which, by the way, these are another one of those movies where they're just named he and she going back to Antichrist territory. So he is very eager to take in Ed Harris. And the main thing is that it's very clear Jennifer Lawrence is very uncomfortable with these people coming in. And her husband is very eager to bring them in and violate her privacy and her the sanctity of her home. And she can never have him to herself. And it gets worse and worse when Ed Harris's wife, Michelle Pfeiffer, who is fucking brilliant in this movie, uh, arrives at the house as well. And, you know, from there on, it's like, well, a bunch of shit starts to happen. And it's never exactly what you're going to expect. And uh, once they seem like they're just about rid of this obnoxious couple, their two sons show up and one kills the other, and I could just describe a whole bunch of incident, but let's just take it one step at a time here. What's
1: important to like say about it is that what, as you describe the plot, it probably sounds like, oh, this must be taking place over the course of many days. Like, oh, the suns show up like three days later or something, but it's not the case. Like, that's the thing. It, the movie, by the end of it, crazy stuff happens so much happens but it feels the way the speed of it works and the way um that we are in uh her per- the mother's perspective feels like it's just happened in the course of like 90 minutes or 2 hours or whatever it is like just all this stuff is happening like minute to minute to minute, to minute um which i think is the like really intense part about this movie is that things escalate so fast like truly like a dream which is something that gets thrown around a lot when it comes to like surreal movies but this really really struck me like a dream just in that these sort of mundane yet frightening things that are going on and they feel so out of i I, her the way she reacts to this the strange things like people just coming into her house all of a sudden and just like everybody else having like some idea that she is not privy to about what's going on is just very dreamlike to me that like so often like the worst nightmares are just like that where it's just like i just couldn't figure out what was happening and like i can't couldn't i can't explain why it was scary but it was just like i was out of control without control and that's how she feels like throughout the whole
0: movie yeah i totally agree i think that jennifer lawrence is so good in this because Her whole performance is so reactive to everything that's happening around her. And there's all of these just little slights and microaggressions from her husband, from these two new guests. And then eventually more and more strangers keep start showing up to the house and she just reacts to everything like it's like she's so wounded with every time that someone shuts her down or gaslights her uh, or has no regard for you know her own feelings and privacy that it it really I want to give her a lot of credit for filtering all of that to make it seem so uncomfortable and to really tap into stuff that would make me incredibly uncomfortable and I'm I've haven't I can't think of any other movie that taps into those very specific feelings of being violated and ignored and just No one listening to you and everyone making insinuations. And why won't you guys get off the goddamn sink? It's not braced to the wall. Stay (laughs) off the sink. And they won't stay off the sink.
1: That happens so many times. Everybody's sitting on the sink.
0: And that's my favorite running joke in this movie. so good. Is the goddamn (laughs) sink.
3: The reason that that first party is happening is is just because this funeral from the brother's death turned into this giant rager. It's like so amazing with the, the public speaking fear and then the just the fact that all these people keep coming and they just want to have a, a celebration of life that just turns into chaos and the great flood, the great biblical flood with the unbraced sink ends the party. <laughs> there you go.
0: Yeah, that's we, we really should try to get across like what a slow boil this movie is and then at certain points, it starts, it just totally goes over the side of the pot. So we, we have this simmer for a long time that's just about these two intruders. And even with them, there's all these great little moments where, you know, both of them are just way too forward and imposing and rude in ways that don't, that's even more infuriating because it does not bother the husband. And even though it so clearly is unnerving the wife. And you know this this couple, they just they, they have these inappropriate displays of affection for each other. And Michelle Pfeiffer, who is so wonderful in this, just little things like when she goes to do laundry and there's some already in the washer, and she just sm- splats them on the floor. And Jennifer Lawrence is like, "What, what are you doing?" And mm-hmm. makes a big mess in the kitchen. But then when after their sons <laughs> show up and one kills the other. They show up again later and suddenly they're having this like w- wake of a kind at the house and all these strangers start showing up. And I think that's when the movie really starts to tip over into, oh, wait, this is this is going like way further over the top than I was prepared for in like a reality bending way. And you're so right, James, that the the way that these people start showing up and they won't get off of the sink and. Sudden, I laugh so hard every time when she walks downstairs and there's a guy with a fucking roller painting her, her like ceiling (laughs) and walls, and she's just, "Why are you painting my house?"
3: (laughs) And it's like a horror movie, but it's so absurd. It hits differently. We bought a house recently, and then watching this movie, it was just like a a nightmare for like someone who now has like a house and it's like oh my god like if any of this stuff happened
2: (laughs) yeah i hope none of this stuff happens to you in your new house (laughs) (laughs) and then in the lead up but in the lead up to
0: all this stuff is you know what you guys were talking about where there's all this mysterious stuff happening and you're waiting for the horror movie payoff because like you said there's she's painting this room and we get kind of a vision of kind of a, a fetus or a heartbeat kind of forming behind the wall. And Jennifer Lawrence keeps, she has these little spells where she needs to take out this little yellow powder and mix it with water and drink it so she can kind of regain herself. And she starts, there's something weird going on with the furnace in the basement. And she sees a heart in the toilet. There's
1: a weird photo that's ripped up and I can't figure out what it is. Yes. All these like little tiny items. And Seth, you
0: mentioned the diamond. This, this diamond, which is like his prized possession that was the only thing that survived a fire that destroyed everything he owned years ago. And so we have all of this stuff going on. And I think that's kind of the one of the things you have to accept about this movie <laughs> is that it's constantly introducing these ambiguous things that you can read a hundred different things into. I feel like this is the movie of a thousand different metaphors and symbols that you can apply to it and in all these different interpretations.
1: I'm trying to remember the line because, like, I made the joke about, like, that she's a homemaker, but there is, like, a line that he says very early on that, like, the house burnt down and she made the house
3: herself or something. She, like, remade the house for him. Yeah, she does say, like, I built this house. And then she, and then she says something like, like, I'm doing a lot of work, and then Javier Bardem is, is just like, yeah, sure. Yeah, he's
0: constantly doing the, having these little asides that just wound her to the core. This is the worst husband. Honestly, I would rather be married to him than, like, his No Country for Old Men character. Or no, I would rather be married to that character than this one. Because at least you, like, know where he stands. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, my God. I will. Yeah, I don't want to marry God uh, necessarily, but I don't want to marry him as Satan either. And no country for old men. Um, But there is an interesting through line with the couple and like Requiem or and I could see like throughout his whole filmography that he at least addresses what I think is probably a common conceit of his work, that it is just about the bombast and the style and the maximalism, um, which I think. He actually confronts really well in Noah and in this movie and at the better points in Requiem, which are, even though there's like, this is an exercise in chaos. Like he is like, Darren is clearly using this movie, like, as like, what could I do with like an army of intruders in a house? And like, what chaos could I create? It still very much like brings you back to these two characters, which like, both exploring the maximalist um, drama of the whole thing, but also just, like, can I just shoot a scene with these two characters and make you care about them and make you, like, even though you're confused by their, like, dynamic, like, you are entranced by it. um, I think he does do a good job with that. And it's to his credit that he's not sort of just, like, one or the other.
0: Yeah, and there's so many different things that you can read into this. I feel like almost every line somebody says is so loaded with symbolic and metaphorical uh potential. And that it's easy to get lost at all these different things. And I do have kind of specific thoughts about that, but that's is something I want to get everybody's opinion on because I think there's some things that are kind of obvious. There's definitely something going on here about Javier Bardem being this artist who is using his wife as a muse and for inspiration and support and love at home. But he's not willing to just share that with her, that he's he's using her up and he is going through this creative process that involves constantly giving her up for other people. But that's just one way to look at it because there are a ton of biblical allusions in this. Seth, you just called uh, Javier Bardem God, and I think that is there is a level where he's supposed to be looked at like that, and that goes from, you know, the two brothers showing up, one killing the other, is like a really clear Cain and Abel reference. She talks about this being their paradise together, and then the thing that happens at the end, which I'm going to try to structure this so we can tackle that on its own and not get too far ahead of ourselves, but there is a a sacrificial type thing that happens <laughs> that is definitely brings all that stuff up, but... I think it all it all fits and not there's not one thing necessarily that holds it a hundred percent together, and that's what I like, that it leaves enough room for ambiguity and different things you can bring to it. And again, all that stuff wouldn't matter if I didn't find this movie so like insanely, deliriously like entertaining and hilarious and terrifying. Uh, but I'm willing to indulge all of that stuff because, uh, like you guys, I love, love this movie. Definitely my favorite Aronofsky film, but it was also my favorite movie the year that it came out. And now on my like fourth watch, I was just as blown away by it and couldn't believe what I was watching.
3: I was surprised at how surprised I, I still was like watching it. Like like I was just like I had forgotten like that like the sequence of things that happened and how it there's like that one party that happens, the chaos, everything that happens toward the point then it settles down and then it just Goes back into right. It's basically a movie of two parties that are just horrible house parties. Worst parties ever. (laughs) Yeah. Which is, yeah, I never thought about
1: it separated like that. Which is, I guess, initiated by this middle point where it seems like everybody left. Am I right? It seems like everybody left.
3: Everyone left. Everyone left, she got pregnant.
0: Like, right away. Like you said, the timeline speeds up in this, in that it seems like over the course of a day. Yeah, she wakes
3: up and she's already, like, months pregnant. Yeah. At the end of the first party, he basically, like, assaults her. And then she's, next morning they wake up and she's like, I'm pregnant. And he's like, I'm gonna write. And he sprints, sprints over to his notepad and writes <laughs> writes this thing. That I mean, as a, as a poet myself, I, I also understand that when I write a poem... And then uh my uh there will be like thousands of people who flock to my to my door immediately as soon as it's finished. Oh yeah. I know the I poet. had to give up
1: poetry. I couldn't handle it anymore. It's too hard People yeah. just kept showing up.
2: Loving it. Yeah, this is actually how James and I met is uh as part of a pilgrimage I took to his home <laughs> upon the release of his latest work and uh yeah, he's like, you know, stole a bunch of stuff from his house and demolished his sink and yeah, and yeah. Now here He is on the podcast. You, 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 you were the one who ate James's baby, right? Oh, <laughs> oh spoiler, sorry, spoiler. spoiler. Sorry. <laughs> Anyways,
0: going back. <laughs> yeah. But no, yeah, we get this brief little respite. You're right, Seth. That they everyone leaves and she gets pregnant, and that seems to coincide with his writing block, uh, writer's block, going away, and he composes his masterpiece.
1: And someone odd, offhandedly says, "It's like I wrote it." like very early on and it's just like something oh like yeah something that people say you know it feels like i wrote it you know but that becomes as it goes along the pandemonium over his poetry um like again in the sequence of the movie like 15 minutes later reaches like a crazy fever pitch where there's like a stream of believers and cultists and ravers that come to the house and are like we wrote this, we are all one, we all write this, he is the one. There's like nothing that we're actually like privy to as to like how the like whatever this belief system is actually about. We don't know. We just get bits and pieces in like the p- huge second party that James mentioned. A Labour Party. <laughs> That's good. That's really good.
0: If you haven't seen this movie, this really unfolds just like a rapid fire nightmare where they're like about to sit down for dinner while she's nine months pregnant and he's just finished his story or whatever it is. And seconds later, he's on the phone with his publisher talking about it. And then a minute later, fans are showing up outside and it's like time has sped up and reality is completely disintegrating here. And like he said, now the house is filling and filling with people And they're starting to steal stuff, like just grabbing things, tearing like doors and windows and shit off because they need something of the poets. And this was where the theater was really getting restless when I first saw this movie. (laughs) I remember hearing some girl being like, you didn't tell me this was a comedy. (laughs) And they couldn't believe what they were seeing because it it gets even crazier from there. The cops show up and riots break out firebombs are thrown uh, there's uh Kristen Wiig shows up as his publisher and at some point there's people all lined up with their heads in sacks and she's executing them <laughs>
1: and- oh i love her in this i could not believe it's happening she is like a good example of just that crisscross of the hilarity of the movie and you're like i'm kind of scared of her as she's executing these people
3: and right before Kristen Wiig tries to kill Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, then like a bomb like kills Kristen Wiig or something. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, all these shrines are popping up where they're worshiping different artifacts. And we get a lot more of the, you know, biblical kind of things that you could read into it.
1: Yeah, they refer to the mother as the inspiration. They keep on like every time she comes up, uh they all refer to her oh you're the inspiration like she's like the mother mary you know
0: and she doesn't want any of it she's trying to get away and they will not leave her alone
3: I, I think each of the 10 plagues is in this really yeah there's like a whole like death of the firstborn like there's like a fly on a windowsill at some point and there's a frog jumping jumping around in the basement oh well yeah the great flood of the of the unbraced sink and the, uh, the the death of the firstborn. Yeah, death of the firstborn. <laughs> Immediately, thing was alive for like ten minutes.
1: Yeah,
3: <laughs> are we there yet? Are we going to talk about that now?
0: Sure. Yeah, because it's, as absurd as all this stuff is, that we're saying and it is like hilarious, but it, it it Jennifer Lawrence is still taking it so seriously that I think she still draws us into the terror of it. And at one point, she does get away from them and gives birth uh, alone in a room with Javier Bardem with the door bolted shut. And she's just trying to protect her baby. And there's another long, quiet sequence where she's holding the baby and Javier wants to hold it, but she won't let him because he wants to share the baby with the crowd. And they have this standoff that is really haunting to me where she's just trying to stay awake and it looks like another day passes because the, com- the sun comes out and it goes away and she just falls asleep enough for a second where the baby is gone and he, he takes it out into the crowd of people. And, uh, again, if you haven't seen this movie, go ahead and watch it. Cause it's crazy. But as soon as they it's, can you believe, I mean, could you believe where you were, how far it went with, like, they're taking the baby, and you see it, like, piss into the air, and its neck <laughs> gets, like, snapped just out of nowhere. Yes,
1: because it's just, like, being tossed around in this wave of hands.
0: And we've spent a good deal of time with this little newborn. So scary. Yeah, and when she gets <laughs> she gets to, like, the front of the room, which is an altar, and they're all feasting on the baby's remains. Everyone is, and she starts pulling the the viscera like out of their hands trying to take it back and i think that that's if the movie hadn't lost people by that point that's the um this is the unwatchable territory here and it is horrifying
3: and then when they start beating her and like everyone around is just like calling her names and shit and beating her up horrifying and it's so brutal
0: yeah this pulls no punches and i think that people leaving the theater giving it an f it's kind of the reaction that this movie's trying to elicit. This, this is a, a, a punk rock terrorist attack on the audience, almost, which almost makes it more like Freddy Got Fingered than any other movie that we've talked about so far. <laughs> that it's like what's going on between the people who have agreed to sit down and watch this movie, and our, our contract has been broken. The, the world of the movie has gotten out of control, and we were not prepared for what's happening And it's out to get you and it got me.
1: It really is. I mean, but I would I think it's so easy to contest it though, that it isn't I think I would walk away feeling a lot more empty if it was just random shit, which I think that's the temptation to just say that this is all random shit. Or even just to like let it rest on that this is just like biblical symbolism being like thrown at the wall. I think even beyond that what what I arrived at, like about the midpoint, is like this is like a like just in the in the spirit of myth, like in fairy tale, like the in 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 the way that like when you read like Greek myths or ancient Norse myths, where like so and so came down from the heavens and touched someone's shoulder, so then they had to eat a bunch of yams for some reason. Like it's like that kind of logic where it's like. It, it 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 belongs to a logic, but it's like an ancient logic, or like we only are getting part of the logic um, because we don't or have a dream pages logic. of the manuscript of the myth or whatever it is. Like that's what it, that's what it struck me as that Aronofsky's playing at with this movie, rather than just being like, "Isn't it fucking crazy?" You know? Yeah, I definitely agree. Do you like James? Do you
0: have like a specific reading of this movie? How do you approach all of this stuff? Because I think that this invites you all throughout to project things onto it, very obviously.
3: Yeah, I feel like it could go, like it could have like a thousand different like readings and they all could be correct in some way. But I always liked, uh, as like a, a creative person myself who hopefully isn't as vicious as Javier Bardem's character, I do like the idea of just like, well, like this. This is just like a fictional world that just gets torn apart, and then and then you try again, and you try to like make whatever you're going for work. Um, hopefully, not in as brutal of a way. I also like the fact that uh, I also see it as like an environmental fable of some sort, where it's just like a like humans trash perfectly good like spaces. I know that like Darren's like a huge like environmentalist guy, um. So like that that makes sense. Like in that reading, where it's like there's. The movie never leaves the planet of the home, and then every time several humans are are uh, are introduced, like it all goes to shit until it like resets a little bit, and then more people come and just project their own destruction upon this uh, really delicate home. Oh, I, I love that because the common thing with
1: like environmental issues are kind is kind of this feeling that we only recently sort of like woke up to what's going on in, in some ways sort of how the mother at the center of this movie feels is just constantly being like, wait, like two seconds ago we were here. And then now all of a sudden the world's ending, like in a hundred years, what, what the hell, like, what, how did we get here? We're like, like, like the, like we lost a lot. We lost the train of thought. We went
3: too fast or something. Yeah, and it's like an assault on your senses. Where it's like, oh shit! I mean, if 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 it were to be read like as an environmental like cautionary tale, it's just like it's like this is happening extremely fast and in unpredictable ways, and then it'll eventually end in maybe not an explosion, but a similarly destructive act. But I don't know. It's it's a hard question to answer because I uh, it's a very another very visceral movie that. Has a lot, a lot of crazy shit happen over a short amount of time, like all of his other movies, basically. Yeah, it's
0: that it's it's as a roller coaster ride, basically. That I appreciate this movie most, and it would be so easy to find a lot of the symbolism and everything just insufferable if it wasn't working on this other level. Because uh, I do think this movie is technically pretentious as fuck. This is absolutely a an art film uh you know full of portent and meaning and interpretation and importance and everything but it all it all works for me because he pushes it so far and it gets so silly and it just as an insane horror movie, I think it's one of the wilder things I've ever seen, and it all that stuff aside it taps into such these elemental things that would get to me personally about people who like won't listen to you and and won't go away and everyone else seems in on something that you don't quite know what it is and they all have this kind of condescending insinuating thing every time they talk to you and no one's taking you seriously and you're just sitting there yelling your head off and no one can hear you and that's that is unsettling to me
3: it's like other forms of literature where things aren't so clear-cut but you're you can understand like what's going on so this movie felt very much like it's like sort of like you're not watching a movie. You're just seeing things presented to you, and then you ju- you're just free to just interpret what you will because no- nothing actually makes sense. And it's also like layered and rich. Yeah, it, I think that whole being dreamlike and surreal really works for it in this in this movie
2: in addition to all this the stuff that clearly has all this like you know biblical symbolism there's also stuff in this that just like they never really tell you what's happening and it's not clear like her constantly sneaking away to drink this like weird yellow powder mixture thing i didn't think had any clear like you know that 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 didn't slide anything into the, any of the biblical stuff or the environmental stuff and there's like there's some kind of just traditional haunted house shit going on like uh the blood stain on the floor and there there's there's all kinds of like red herrings in this so it's not like I don't think for as as clear as the symbolism is I think it's like self-aware and it's not like I don't think it's trying to to beat you into submission with it well he is so
0: good at building unease and dread and paranoia and little uncanny details and so he just gets to run wild with that in this movie like early on when ed harris is there like spending the night just the first night jennifer lawrence comes in and finds him vomiting with javier bardem like patting him on the back and the next morning she asks about it and they act and they just act like they don't know what she's talking about and you don't see any reason for them to be like hiding this or what's going on. It just makes you feel
3: nervous. Ed Harris just made me uncomfortable anytime he was he was uh, in <laughs> on on the screen. <laughs> like even from like <laughs> he's just so so weird weirdly presented. Like from like the very first time he like walks in.
0: And I I don't want to read too much into this like tabloid type stuff, but I mean. Darren Aronofsky has stated that this is a personal film of, you know, about stuff that he was going through and he was in a relationship with Jennifer Lawrence during this movie, during the filming of this movie. I didn't know that. So if you look at that, where this is kind of explicitly talking about how this artist, this poet is, is using and abusing her, you know, for his process And you see what Jennifer Lawrence has to go through constantly in this movie, sobbing and going through all these horrible things. I mean, that's a whole other layer to throw on there.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that.
0: And surprise, surprise, they are not together any longer. (laughs) There's even the big age difference that they note, which was reflected in real life, too. Whoa,
3: weird. He just kept inviting his stupid friends over. Javier Bardem was Darren Aronofsky all along.
0: Jennifer Lawrence was just trying to hang out with Aronofsky and she's like, Why do you keep inviting Jared Leto over?
1: <laughs> because of God. And because I'm God. He's
0: so weird. He keeps, he's doing that movie in the wheelchair and we keep, we had to put it in the ramp so he could visit us. <laughs> but, where where? Yeah, but where will he go? Just a bummer. But where will he go? They have nowhere else to go. <laughs> well, James, thank you for joining us. This was. A lot of fun, and is there? I'm sure you have something out there that, that uh, you would like to promote to our our legions. Uh, don't you? Don't you have a uh, book coming out?
3: Yeah, sure. I just yeah, I just came out with uh, my third poetry chapbook about a week and a half ago. It's called Count Seeds with Me. It's, uh, yeah, it's and then I also came out with a another chapbook like six seven months ago. It's also available called Our Past Weeds. So.
2: James, where can people find you online or find your chat book? Uh,
3: I have a website, uh, jamescrolljackson.com. Uh, that's J A M E S C R O A L, uh, J A C K S O N.com. I'm also on Twitter at JimJack, J I M J A K K, and Instagram, JamesCrollJackson. I'm sure I, I probably shouldn't be giving this information because as a poet, I don't want people to uh, come storming on my door and meet other Tonys who make pilgr- pilgrimages.
2: Our throngs of devoted listeners will come to your house. They'll, they'll fuck up your sink. But they will they might read your chapbook, too.
0: I'm on my way. Hide your babies. Yeah, I would definitely
2: hide your babies. Mother, tell your children not to walk my way. Tell your
0: children not to hear my words What they mean, what they say Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpetti Hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer With artwork by Micah Kraus You can find Seth and I on Letterbox Under Mark D'Otavio and Sloth Troyer You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com For links to our Twitter and Instagram Or support us on Patreon for bonus content And to have a say in what we watch